Welcome to the Final Girls Podcast. This is Anna, co-founder of the Final Girls Collective and your podcast host. If you're new to the show, every season on the Final Girls Podcast, we explore the intersections of horror film and feminism by looking at a particular trope in depth. We are fully into our third season centered on vampires, or as I've been calling them throughout the last 18 episodes, the most elegant and the horniest of movie monsters. In each episode so far, I am joined by a special guest to dive deep into a vampire movie or two, where we discuss the films in detail, try to contextualize them, and think about what works and what doesn't. In today's episode, we're going fully international with a deep dive into two vampire horror films that live in that delightful and delicious gray area between art house and horror cinema. First up, we will be tackling the frankly perfect 2008 Swedish horror Let the Right One In, which tells the story of a bully 12-year-old boy named Oscar who develops a friendship with a vampire child called Eli. Following that, we will discuss Park Chan-wook's 2009 romantic horror film Thirst, which tells the story of a Catholic priest who is turned into a vampire through a medical experiment and struggles to contain both his lust for his friend's wife and his thirst for blood. It's thirsty on many levels. It's a multi-layered thirst film. I'm so sorry. Joining me to discuss both films, and especially the multiple levels of thirst in Park Chan-wook's film, is the brilliant writer and Bloody Women's commissioning editor Leila Latif to go in-depth on all the things that make these two films practically perfect. Before we go into the rest of the episode, I have to give thanks to our video who have made this vampire season possible and who bring out the very best in cult, horror and genre films, specializing in definitive home entertainment editions with newly commissioned artwork and specially curated extras. Their collection is super huge now with over 500 physical releases and throughout the season we have been recommending a particular title from their collection that goes with the films that we are discussing. And today's pick is not strictly a horror film, but rather a super stylized and very violent revenge filler called The Villainess, which actually stars the lead from Thirst, Kim Ok-bin. It is a ton of fun. If you're interested in supporting us, please do leave us a review on Apple Podcast. It genuinely helps a lot. So if you've been enjoying the show, leave us a little review. Really, really appreciate it. And we are also publishing bonus episodes over on our Patreon, which you can find at patreon.com forward slash the final girls. And with all of that said, if you are new to the podcast, please know that we discuss the films in detail pretty much from the very beginning. So if you're averse to any discussion of a film before you watch it, consider this your spoiler warning. And if you don't really mind that, then please enjoy our discussion of Let the Right One In and Thirst. Layla, welcome back into the podcast. How have you been? Yeah, it's um, it's a lot at the moment, but pretty good, all things considered. Yeah, and we are recording this on the day that the Oscar nominations have been announced. Yes, justice for Delroy Lindo. Uh, yes. But some other, you know, nice things that have come out of it. Um, apparently Judas and the Black Messiah doesn't have a lead, so that was always news <laughs> to me. <laughs> yeah, that was... Uh, sure? Sure, that was 
yeah, there is no leading man in that film where Lakeith Stanfield is clearly the leading man. Yeah, anyway. I just really hope that it doesn't split the vote because I really want Daniel Kaluuya to win. And oh. um, if that splits the vote, then we might get Sasha Baron Cohen for the pretty mediocre trial of Chicago 7. Well, that is as much as we're going to comment on the Oscars on, <laughs> on this episode. It could be a full episode. <laughs> it could be a whole full episode. But Every year I try not to care and every year I'm like counting down to the announcement and getting really emotionally invested. Just keep getting sucked back in. We're going to be talking about two wildly different films, wildly different one to another but i think one of the things that really connects them is the fact that they're not just that they came out around the same time with let the right one in in 2008 and thirst in 2009 but also that they fit really nicely in this sort of gray area of horror that i love uh that i like to call art house horror because it seems a little bit more respectful than elevated genre which is a I think is rooted in being really dismissive towards genre. Yeah. But I mean, elevated horror, that is just like the most odious term. And it's always comes from people that don't know anything about horror. Yes. And every year you'll get kind of like, a, oh my God, look, Ariasta, he's released the best horror film in like decades. And you're just like, it's not even the best horror film. in the- It's very good, but it's not the best horror film in the last six months. Like, <laughs> there is such a steady stream of like incredible subversive work that is always coming out in this field. And it's just so irritating that like, there is like cultural amnesia about like every single year it's always coming as well from the kind of the the mainstream critical establishment let's call it as opposed to the the genre specific uh the genre specific journalists but these to bring them back to these two films it's very rare as well that genre films or horror films specifically sort of break not just through the mainstream critical bodies but also foreign language films Mm. break through into the pop culture mainstream so not just horrors but actually kind of art house like art house films with horror sensibilities that are made not in the english language that breaking through into the mainstream is quite unique and happens very very rarely and I think probably let the right one in more so than Thirst mm. managed to do that. And it's still increasingly rare, I think. Yeah, I mean, I would say the thing with let the right one in is it's it's so dialogue light. It's mm. so like watching it, I just had so many moments where it was like the subtitles would reappear and I'd be like, oh, wait, yeah, like this film <laughs> isn't in English because nobody had spoken for like 15 minutes. Mm. And I definitely think there is a thing when it comes to foreign language films of ones that require a little bit less reading ones that have a lot of like visual mastery and they kind of do storytelling through like tone and architecture and you know all you know they're hitting on all of those bases as well Uh, you know people can connect with them from a english language audience as well who's often Mm -hmm. far too lazy to kind of read the little dialogue at the bottom Mm -hmm. but that's not to undermine this film i think this film is literally perfect (laughs) so on that note i think that's a perfect time to really dig into let the right one in from 2008 
du vampyr? Hade du tyckt om mig ändå? To start our conversation about this film, do you remember what was what was your first impression of it when you first saw it, and how has your relationship with the film evolved over the years since it was released? Yeah, I went to go see it with my aunt, who's not really a horror fan, just a uh, horror fan, just before she was getting married, as a kind of weird like two days before the wedding ritual. Okay. Um, yeah, <laughs> and I think it was that thing of like kind of that odious elevated horror film thing mm-hmm. where like we're gonna go see this well-reviewed horror and um i think assume her assumption was that it, then it means it's not going to be particularly violent so i remember <laughs> like the kind of tension next to me starting when the man starts pouring acid all over to disfigure his own face where it's like oh oh i assumed i was just coming to see something that was kind of tonally horror rather than actual like throats being ripped out which it is <laughs> Yeah, but even it's funny because that still affected my impression of it because mm. coming back to it years later, I was like, I was kind of shocked by like, oh, wait, no, this is like very like visceral and like at times ridiculous and quite extreme and like really quite bloody. And mm-hmm. like, it's like my memory had slightly, you know, softened it and made it a little bit more moody and mm-hmm. more hinting at things. So, yeah, I was really glad to reconnect with it. I had completely forgotten about the scene where all of the cats attack that lady. Yeah, me too. (laughs) (laughs) And, like, I was almost, like, punching the air with joy, being like, yes! (laughs) Really? Because I was terrified, because I instantly thought, oh, that is your feature. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, as a non-cat owner... I, uh, you know, it perhaps wasn't so so worrying for me, but yeah, no, but it was just it. There's some real like camp fun, mm-hmm. which I'd forgotten, you know, as well as the kind of like greater sort of cursed, sad landscape that this film takes place in. So, let's talk a little bit about um the key the key characters of this film because it's so much resting on Oscar and Ella, and Eli, the, the vampire of the film. And they're both extremely lonely characters, each in their own way. So what do you think about the way that the film introduces us, us to them and to the dynamic that builds between them? Yeah, I just, I love how they're both, you know, quite androgynous mm-hmm. and they have this sort of like yin and yang quality to them in the sort of the white blonde hair and the, the dark hair and they're kind of like quite similarly sized and they do mm-hmm. look sort of like they perfectly fit together and sort of enhance one another in that way but it's just two such great performances from like young adolescents that mm-hmm. you know quite often are a little self-conscious on screen um i was very impressed and i think that particularly um Lena Leanderson, I'm not assuming that I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. Like, she, it's very impressive how she sort of has this like innocence of the child that she's sort of, you know, able to um, project 
mm-hmm. quite seamlessly on screen. But then you do get a sense of like, oh no, this is a hundred year a being that is hundreds of years old mm. and has like the kind of self confidence that comes with that. Like one of my favorite moments is actually just a scene where she's with her kind of keeper, mm-hmm. and you don't even see her; you just hear her voice. And it's, you know, it's the actresses doing that voice and it has been like played with slightly, but it gets this like great echoey feeling that sort of like somehow in its echoiness makes it feel like it's coming from hundreds of years ago. Mm. And like all of that stuff is done kind of layered in so well to feel something that it's not like a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde thing, which I think would be a lot easier to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I really like this thing that she is sort of in a permanent state of conflict in that sense. Hmm. And it also feels incredibly challenging, I guess, mm. to even even fathom a horror film that's entirely based and seen through the eyes of two children. And I realized that Ella is not strictly a child because there are several well, it's not really established how old they are, is it? It's no. Sort of twelve-ish when they were turned. Yeah, yeah. So, what do you make of them? Of this film, kind of seen through the prism of children, and the fact that this horrible, really violent story is all entirely being told through the point of view of two children. Yeah, it is interesting, like how they are like steadfastly children, because I think when you do have that sort of cusp of, you know, 12, 13 or whatever it Mm. is that they are, that like you, you're, that's a conflicted time in anyone's life when you do have this sort of like desire to be older and like sexual ideas coming through. But these two seem very like steadfastly as children. Mm. Like there isn't like much kind of sexual chemistry in their dynamic at all. And like in some ways, like, that's the sort of heartbreaking thing about Oscar is Mm. that like he is even within his peers quite childish I do remember there's one scene where um, he's trying to lift weights like to kind of bulk up which is like one of the like saddest things that I've ever seen on screen Um, but he is like he is in himself like in no rush to be adult and to be adult at all with Ellie like and they suppose that's the sort of sad thing about him is that the other boys that he is interacting with mm. sort of forcing him to grow up in a way that he's not really ready for. Yeah, and I guess that's the saddest or the most kind of horrifying in in real life terms element of the film is the fact that it's so much a story about a neglected child and and a child that's been hideously bullied by his peers and finds solace mainly in a in a vampire and not in anyone around him like the fact that it's a supernatural blood drinking creature the one that will help him is is kind of incredibly sad at the heart of this you know this vampire horror film it's a story about a neglected kid who's being bullied yeah, and I I think coming back to it, like especially what's been happening recently, where we've all kind of been talking about as a society how we have to reckon with what we, you know, how we raise our boys and like mm. how we, you know, what is it that we do that inspires such violence in men? And I think it starts at a very young age. So looking at this now, it did feel like, oh, well, this is like the roots of like male violence and like the terrible things that like 
young boys and adolescents have to face their dynamics with their peers like you know i watched this and then like in the news i was reading about a 12 year old boy who was arrested for a stabbing and like obviously that's a very different thing and you know all of these situations are complex complicated but i felt like being a girl has sheltered me from so much i never had any sense even in like you know toxic environments that i had as a you know in school growing up or like issues i i never felt threatened for my safety Mm. i never felt that i had to like put on muscle and like learn how to like fight someone or else i might actually be physically harmed in some way and it's weird to talk about privilege when you're talking about men but like Mm. in a way that is a privilege to have like been sheltered enough that simply by your gender because i went to an all-girls school Mm. um of like never having that like violence in my life and it's very like normal. I was talking to my husband about it and he was just like, oh yeah, no, totally. Like you could kind of keep out of people's way a little bit if you were lucky, but like there's mm. a, like a threat of like violence when you are a young male adolescent, which is just like beyond fucked up and it's still happening. Mm. I mean, I wish I could say I had the same experience. Girls can be extremely mean yeah. and violent as well in different scenarios, but you, I think you're right. It's like these two worlds that seem to exist in Oscar's life and the one at home that he has is like quite cold and mm. neglectful and he nobody really pays that much attention to him and there's the boys in his school are paying way too much attention to him and there is no there is no there is no weights that he can live. There's nothing that he can do once he becomes the target of that bullying. And I think it's that like relentlessness that becomes so heartbreaking to watch, even covered in the supernatural, you know, storytelling. It's still, mm. if you take all of that away, it's an incredibly human story. And I liked how like the film in just this like super subtle way, mm. you know, towards, I mean, well, I'm sure we'll talk about the swimming pool scene at length at some point, but um, they just bring in this older brother of his yes. bully, who is an even worse, more violent psychopath. And you're just like, oh, okay, so that's why that's why Jimmy is like that. Because mm. if that's your brother, that is what you become. It's a cycle of abuse continuing. And I feel like this is a good point maybe to bring in Ellie a bit more and mm. how they're characterized. And it's definitely something that went a bit over my head when I first watched this film when it came out. But as I rewatched it, I noticed it more and more. And it's and it's directly addressed in the text. And I was wondering, what do you think about the way that Ellie, the vampire, is presented? Not just as a vampire, but also as gender-wise. Because it's not... I think the film really skirts around how Ellie is, identifies themselves. Hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, I guess that the whole thing is her being, like, such a young girl, she's able to, like, in just, like, the first scene we see with her under the bridge, she's able to kind of sneak into spaces and make people feel safe and, like, and by kind of projecting herself as being so vulnerable. And people don't suspect, like, uh, the monster that lies within, which, mm. uh, you know, had she been a sort of middle-aged guy people wouldn't be rushing up to comfort her in the snow. So yeah, I mean, that's a cool juxtaposition. It's, I mean, it's not the first time we've seen that, but mm. it is something that's like played to very effectively in this. 
and you know she's such she's got such an extraordinary face this young actress that she's able to kind of project a sort of like real soulful sadness mm. with these like giant beautiful eyes even in Simon's way you know you see her face and she is like splattered in blood mm-hmm. like yeah um i really would like to see more of them i don't know whether i need to kind of do a sort of scandy deep dive into cinema and hopefully find some more roles that both of them did well the thing that I found actually really interesting on rewatch is mm. is that that um, helplessness as a lo- presenting as a little girl is the, I don't know. Did you notice the fact that Ellie is not actually a girl? What in the film? Well, I mean, she says that she's not a girl. Yeah, and I always thought that that meant uh, that's because I'm a vampire, right? As yeah. opposed to a girl, in the same way that you know Twilight uses says that. But there's a scene, and I haven't read the novel yet. It's been on my list for ages, but I haven't seen it. But the and but in the adaptation, which was done by the author of the novel as well, mm-hmm. and then there's a specific shot in the film where Oscar watches Ellie change, and mm-hmm. the implication being that Ellie is a boy that was castrated. <gasps> what? Yeah, did you Mind not see it? Blow no. Oh, <laughs> so this is why. I I've find... seen this film four times. What are you talking about? <laughs> so there's a so in the novel, right? And I say this only having read about the novel. I haven't read it myself. Um, okay. It is explicitly said that Ellie is a is a boy that was turned vampire and was castrated by another vampire. Oh wow! And then in the in the film, and then there's the idea that that makes you a girl. Well, there's the there's the idea as well that Ellie is masquerading as a girl because that because of all of the things that you mentioned, the fact that nobody would suspect them, everybody would trust them. It's a figure to be protected, right? If you find a a a, a girl by them by herself in the middle of an alleyway, you'd go to sort of protect her or comfort her, right? Or you'd be worried. You wouldn't mm-hmm. expect the little girl to jump and and you know tear your throat out. But there's yeah. actually a shot in the film where we see the scars. Mm. on oh. the on the pubic area and Oscar well, is watching Ellie change and it's really quick and I literally only noticed this time around when I was re-watching the film I was like oh it's in the actual text of the film as well it's just positioned in a way that it's never really the they don't they don't articulate it but it's like there Okay, well, now I'm, for the first time, slightly annoyed with how little dialogue there is in that film. <laughs> because there could have been one sentence for me to appreciate this whole new amazing layer to this. Like, this is so much more subversive a view of gender than I anticipated. I love it. I wish I just had found this out years ago. <laughs> <laughs> me too. And I think, you know, to be honest, we're uh, I'm only in the last few years gaining the language to to fully like start to have conversations around all of the implications of gender identity and all of that, and I'm nowhere near being able to to articulate a lot of the stuff that kind of much, much smarter people than I have been talking about, but I find it really amazing and transgressive and not even subtle, kind of hiding in plain sight, the fact that this film in 2008, a horror film about a, a lonely bullied kid and a vampire and a, a, a like a small child vampire also playing around with the idea of gender and how Ellie is presenting as a girl and is played by a female actress. Yeah. But the but gender identity is so much yeah. more complicated. But it's funny also because 
I mean, I haven't seen the American remake because I sort of just thought it was like aggressively pointless. But if you, I've seen the trailers and some clips and stuff, but she's much, well, they are much less androgynous in the American remake. So that is something clearly that they shied away from as an interpretation because maybe just too complicated. So, so were we to understand that when Ellie was made into a vampire, Mm -hmm. the castration must have happened just before so this is something very intentional in order to facilitate being able to hunt more effectively because that's the way that people look at girls well i probably without being able to really say in the in the what happens in the novel mm. but from the film i think i that would be my theory yeah because they play into it so much yeah i think they they play into it uh on purpose and that that line of dialogue where Ellie kind of says, you know, when Oscar is like, oh, do you want to be my girlfriend? Which is really cute because they're, mm. you know, little kids and it's just really, really, a really sweet kind of nascent romance that they have. And Ellie is, is literally saying, I'm not a girl. But because we think that it's because they're a vampire, yeah. that's the only layer. But there's so much more. Amazing. It's God, so amazing, right? It kind of makes it better. And, like, it's interesting then that, like, the person that Ellie considers to be, like, a soulmate is actually, like, a young boy who is being, like, deeply emasculated by mm. these other kind of brutish boys. God, I'm seeing it all so clearly now. <laughs> it's now, it's now, it kind of now, when I rewatch it, it kind of becomes, as you mentioned before, such an interesting take and exploration and kind of breaking apart of how masculinity is formed. And yeah. what that means and what the expectations are, especially if we consider the ending when, you know, I'm jumping way, way, way ahead. But the fact that Oscar becomes the caretaker, caretaker of Ellie, mm-hmm. that's a really yeah. nurturing kind of almost not, you know, that's a really nurturing role. And that's something that is consistently drummed out of boys as well, that they're not nurturers. Yeah. And that they, and it's funny because like they clearly have like a kind of, they they have like such a kind of loving attraction to one another, but mm. it, we never feel like it is sexual, but it, I suppose with what's happened to Ellie, like that's kind of not something that they would like really be capable of. So mm. they're looking for some a connection on, on a different level, even though as a hundred year old being you would assume that'd be something that you would be interested in much like how in twilight (laughs) (laughs) he stayed a virgin until he was very very old didn't he well we are led to believe i mean that is a terrible film but a similar thing of like the chaste vampire is kind Mm -hmm. of an interesting idea and we don't see it very often because like vampires like kind of symbolize like a sort of escape from being like sexually repressed and kind of on that note, what do you make of how this film actually uses the figure of the vampire and updates it? I just think it was like so brilliantly realized as a sort of like tapping into sort of a very like primal rage rather than something like that mm-hmm. was like significantly sexual. And like I liked how that was sort of reflected in the journey that Oscar is in. He really reminded me a lot of um, Adam Sandler and Punch Drunk Love of like this like mild mannered, like very like sweet person who is just like being pushed too far. Mm. And as a result has this like simmering level of anger being kept just between the surface. And when he does have chances to like express it, you can just see the strength and the joy like 
pouring out of like every molecule of his body. Like he's never happier in this entire film than after he hits his bully on the side of the head with, um, you know, with a pole and splits his ear, his ear open. It's like a really empowering, joyful thing for him to like tap into some anger. We do have some, I think, examples in pop culture and in cinema of sort of child vampires. Mm. Uh, I'm thinking especially of Claudia in Interview with a Vampire. But how do you think the, the vampire that Ellie is sort of uses some of those tropes that we associate with vampires in cinema quite a lot like the you know not just the sunlight or the way that they hunt but also the not being able to enter someone's property without being invited first and a couple of other those things like what do you make of the way that it uses those very specific vampiric tropes yeah i was really like struck when i was watching this where i can't think of another film that did the whole like insatiable hunger Mm. of a vampire quite as well as this like you know there's so much of in the sound design of like you know this sort of like mouthy um you know deep hunger that she's feeling and kind of even just like the chomping sounds and Mm -hmm. the sort of like you know the groaning of the stomach and stuff like you truly feel that she is going to starve and collapse at any second even though we you know saw her drink someone dry like mere hours beforehand and like i thought that was like a really interesting thing because I, with so many vampire films we do have a sense of it's like oh no they must drink in order to live but you never like see them quite so, like well not never but you don't normally see them quite so chomping at the bit <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah but I appreciated that and like I you know I'm one of those people that like if I'm on the radio and somebody like eats something whilst they're eating like I feel like physically ill so like that really like great sound design like it was very effective to me but also the use of silence right because in that scene mm. where LA cannot go into Oscar's house it's it there is no there is no dramatic music in that no it's just the the silence and the witnessing of the of this bleeding out is really intense because there's nothing else. It's so horrible that moment. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's it's funny because we don't. That's again like with vampires, and I'm thinking mostly of kind of Buffy. But there's like an idea that like, oh, I can't come in. It's like an invisible wall. I can't like mm. I'll bounce off. I can't. But like to see it, it's like, oh no, this is what it will do to me. It's quite like shocking and what do you make kind of we've we've spoken a little bit about um our disdain for even the term elevated genre but yeah you you mentioned at the beginning that you think this film is perfect why do you think it succeeds as a horror film specifically within horror genre i think it's just an incredibly like complicated and like well realized like ecosystem of everything where like everything from within this sort of like cursed cold scandinavian 80s landscape is just played so beautifully and like with such specificity like i feel that like in the choices of like the pop music and Mm -hmm. in the sort of like 
you know, faded jumpers that are people are wearing. Like you can like you can almost like smell the smells of those rooms. Mm. And like minor characters that kind of didn't need to be anything. Like I cannot tell you how much I love Gosta with all of his like <laughs> many, many cats and his like lovely patterned knitwear. Mm-hmm. And I think if you just kind of have a film that has like has that level of like richness in like areas where it really kind of doesn't have to but they've just still built it up to be so interesting and just like these tiny, like even the thing with the Ellie's been like, how did I miss that? Because there is so much that is so good in this that like, you know, even like minor details like that, the little details can like slip through. And then it's why it's so good to rewatch because you're picking up on little things all of the time. Mm. And we mentioned you mentioned the the scene in the swimming pool a little bit, but there's there is quite a lot of gruesomeness in this mm. film, which I think also takes people a little bit by surprise. I don't know if you feel this way, but sometimes I think that people think that American horror films are the most violent or the most graphic horror films. Which is insane. It's like- insane. It's very untrue. <laughs> and I do wonder if sometimes kind of uh, international horror films when they are as graphic and mm. use violence and kind of horror very effectively, it almost surprises people. Yeah, because Abby, it's just the same elevated horror bullshit of like, oh, well, you know, in order to kind of be, you know, a horror film that is, you know, intelligent, you have to be like something like Get Out or The Babadook and nothing actually like that nasty has to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, which is just like very limiting and basic as takes go. And I'm depressed that like I still see it all the time. I still see it in like respected publications couple of times a year Hmm. but yeah but but i mean like the violence in this film it's like it's not constant so you never get like deadened to it like it's kind of and it often comes quite suddenly Mm -hmm. so i think that's what makes it really really efficient for me like i don't really i love a immolation scene (laughs) 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 and this was a very very good one it was a grave one. And we haven't even talked about the very odd relationship between Eli and their protector, Handler. Yeah. Well, it's, my assumption is kind of like this is, you know, this is kind of what's happening in this film is something that happened like 40 years previously, where, you know, they connected with like probably someone that was their own age and then they became mm. the Handler. And then that's also the fate that's going to happen to Oscar is, um, they're going to kind of be in that role and eventually be traded in for a younger model i think the same i think that's the way that i read it is that Eli is is constantly refreshing Mm. their um their connections and the people that will that will protect them yeah the curse of immortal life it's gonna happen to wonder woman too (laughs) (laughs) and especially considering that it's a child vampire so it's a vampire child trapped in a child's body they're never going to be able to be as self-sufficient as an adult no it's funny that like in a way that like you the sort of curses that you're going to go from like a sort of loving peer and a romantic relationship into someone's just going to age into being your parent mm. like like it, i mean what could be worse <laughs> <laughs> and i wanted to talk specifically about the swimming pool scene 
Oh my god, this is one of my favourite scenes in all of horror. And I have, you know, I again, I did refuse to watch the American remake. I have mm-hmm. watched the American version of the swimming pool scene, and I can okay. say that it is good, but worse. <laughs> it's one of your favourite scenes, so... Oh my god, I love it. Why do you love it so much? Kind of what works about it so much for you? Well, I think there's so many things that are kind of happening simultaneously. Like, I love the creepy pop music that's happening in the way. Mm. Also already on the back foot because the way that oscar keeps his mouth open whilst he swims is truly disgusting (laughs) okay and then i love how they introduce this like terrible older brother Mm. which just kind of like ties into that super depressing relationship that this is all coming from and then the sound design again of whatever of like the way they filter the sound through the water is just Mm. done so beautifully and some of it having watched it so many times doesn't really make sense because like how is he able to continue holding his head down after he's been decapitated wouldn't you let go but it's so perfectly realized that they just you know it's just such confidence as a filmmaker to be like Mm -hmm. no we're literally not going to look above the water and then this this like phenomenal thing that detail that i really liked and i'd forgotten was that there's one child survives and when we do finally get above the water the fact that it's like then punctuated by just like a sobbing child on the bench having just witnessed all of his friends being literally Mm. torn into pieces just adds this like really like cursed melancholy to it all and then the beautiful connection of then oscar and ellie's eyes just meeting Mm. and the few spatters of blood i think it's just gorgeous there's literally nothing about it i would change i think it's a wonderful wonderful scene (laughs) i love it love it (laughs) and what did you make of the ending well i was very glad that gosta survived (laughs) (laughs) i was very nervous for him at several points but yeah it was just kind of like i think it's that thing that a lot of uh films do very well of like just that kind of Chekhov's gun of we're just going to bring something back from earlier on to tie this back so like the little Morse code on 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 the box I thought was a lovely Mm. moment to leave it on and we sort of briefly talked a little bit about it before but this was one of those films that really broke through into Mm. the mainstream and it got I think almost universal critical acclaim and people were doing the thing that we kind of complain about a little bit of, you know, this is the film to resurrect horror, or this is the best modern vampire film ever, I think Roger Ebert said in his review. But why do you think it struck such a chord at that time? And I know I know it's like a, a complicated question because it's been a long time, and also mm. our big cultural relationship with horror has changed quite a lot. But it still seems one of those films that is almost untouchable. Yeah. Well, I suppose it was actually kind of at the time where vampires were everywhere Mm. back in 2009. So it's almost like it came along as like a gritty remake of uh, (laughs) like the sort of teen vampires that we were seeing. Um, But that kind of does it a disservice, don't you think? Like, I think it kind of should just be 
appreciated for what it is and it's not just looking at the vampire myth i think it's like doing what all of the best horror does where we're talking about like a terrible societal ill and like political and existential issues and we're just exploring it through Mm -hmm. this myth so i mean i i i will struggle to find something negative to say about uh, um let the right one in oh i'm not gonna say anything negative about it because i think it's it's a gorgeous film i think it would be a gorgeous film if it was not using horror but obviously it taps into my particular interests really really well but i do find it really fascinating how this film and you know even as two people who really love it and who really love and appreciate horror in all its forms can still kind of find new meanings and new layers to it years onwards I'm amazed at a film that feels as transgressive as this one in some in some ways. Mm. But it does exactly that, you know, like sometimes people think that that idea of socially minded horror films was invented with Get Out. But the best kind of horror is always talking about something deeper and usually using genre as a way to to articulate things that are much more complicated and much more difficult, perhaps, to present very directly well now with you coming to you know towards the end of this vampire season what is it that you feel that's like distinct about this i know you always complain i turn things around on you but i'm always just so interested in your thoughts like what do you feel that's like unique about (laughs) let the right one in i never complain about it i just find it really funny because you always do it i was like (laughs) when is it gonna happen when is she gonna turn it around and be i'm gonna be put on the spot (laughs) um do you know what i it, looking back now, having rewatched it now, I think it's the it's the ideas about gender, mm-hmm. and you know I'm not going to pretend to have been smarter than I was at the time when I first watched it. I didn't get it at that time. When I was revisiting it this time, I started noticing, and I think because we're ta- we're thinking a lot about what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, what it mm-hmm. means to move in the world, what it means to put yourself in danger what it means to feel safe as well yeah and having been watching very very different types of vampire films i think a lot about how you know it's a very romantic and very horny uh type of character when it's in an adult male form and let the right one in is so subversive because it challenges our ideas of vampires because it, it like ellie is really scary they can yeah. jump on you and, and tear your throat out like the the actual violence the bloodletting in this film is really grounded it's very practical you know mm-hmm. the whole thing of them just sort of draining their victims in a way that is as uh <laughs> efficient as possible is kind of very serial killery right and the idea that they're kind of using this construction kind of using people's assumptions of what's safe and who's safe against them is also really scary because that kind of denotes to me a really intense understanding of rules in society that we're only just now unpacking yeah. On a on it a is. larger pop culture scale, I mean. Sorry. Yeah. 
Oh no, it is interesting that like in many ways we never actually see the full extent of what Ellie is capable mm. of because the swimming pool scene where she rips three people to pieces in the space of maybe 45 seconds mm. like takes place entirely off screen and we only see like the slightest hints of it. Like clearly there's something that she's sort of functional i think mostly in the way that she tries to kill people but you don't really get a sense of like that there's like a great joy for her in like killing people and like drinking her blood it's like a wholly necessary act but like that moment where she's having to defend oscar she kind of taps into like a desire to hurt Mm. which is why she's uh so savage super savage Mm. and you, I know that you already mentioned that you didn't watch the the remake, but the remake kind of came really, really quickly after this yeah. one, and yeah, but like everything about it was slightly annoying to me. Like even the <laughs> fact that they changed, called it "Let Me In," which yeah. I'm like, you've literally taken a really good name and made it slightly worse, and I feel <laughs> that that's going to be thematically what's going to be happening in this entire film but i was i did you know the Mm. swimming pool scene of the american one is on youtube so you can just check that out if you just kind of want to do a side by side and you can just see everything is just slightly less stylish and slightly less specific Mm. it's just like a a blandening which i mean to be fair it's not okay of me to judge it based on like the one scene that in the trailer that i've seen but yeah no to remakes just you know this film has got like all of 16 minutes of dialogue in <laughs> like the idea <laughs> that like oh no american audiences couldn't handle this film that is for the most part silent well, very annoying i was gonna ask you kind of rather than about the specific remake of let the right one in like what do you make in general of the idea of this sort of running to do uh an american usually usually american but that would be unfair to just generalize but yeah okay an english language remake of an incredibly successful foreign language horror yeah it's it just came up again recently with train to busan mm-hmm. where it's like oh so you're going to literally take a film that has perfected the visual medium of storytelling and remake it why <laughs> <laughs> Oh yeah, I just—it's just kind of sad and it's lazy and like so much of, you know, the most exciting things that come out of horror is well, out of all genres, people doing something new and experimental. So I mean, I know it's like the most boring take in the world to be like, I don't want there to be more remakes, but truly, mm. they need to stop. <laughs> well, before we move on to thirst, is there anything that we haven't talked about, let the right one in, that you wanted to mention? Uh, I've covered my love of Gosta. Now I think we're good. <laughs> <laughs> We've covered my fear of cats. That's great. Yeah. Um, so on that note, let's move on to talking about Park Chan Wook's Thirst from 2009.
살리는 일을 하고 싶어요. 이렇게 자꾸 보내기만 하자니 괴로워 죽겠습니다. maybe eight years ago or something mm. like that. But, I mean, I would go so far to say that um, Park Chan-wook is, like, top three of my favourite directors. Like, I adore his work. And I just think he's someone that can, like, cross into so many different mm. genres so effortlessly. I, I I could write books about how much I love the film The Handmaiden. Mm-hmm. But actually, to be fair, bringing it back to let the right one in, Thomas Alfredson is not bad at that either. Like, I mean, these are two films from, like, non-genre directors. Mm-hmm. Well, um, at least, like, that aren't just genre directors. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I'm not, under- <laughs> I'm not saying yeah. only, you know, that that's a bad thing. But it is interesting that both of them were able to, like, turn their hand to genre mm-hmm. in a way that, um, in, in a way that was so effective. Um, I do like a lot of his other kind of hor- um, forays into horror. Have mm-hmm. you ever seen the short cut that he did? Yes, I have. Yeah, I love Three Extremes. Mm-hmm. It's great. But yeah, his entry is particularly effective for me. So I guess that's a perfect way to ask you my next question. So where do you think this film sits within the work of Park Chan-wook? Um, God, yeah, he's sort of him firing on all cylinders isn't it because he's got i mean he's so good at romance and Mm. he's so good at sort of like making things extremely visceral and then he's also so good at just layering in like the darkest of humor into Mm. everything that he does um i do i mean not to kind of like just talk about how much i love him i do particularly love the way that all of his films are edited like there's such like an amazing pace to like the way things are done and from what i understand from just a quick google is that he doesn't edit his own films but one he has a collaborator called king sang bum who Mm -hmm. has edited everything that he's ever done and like that is just the most beautiful collaboration in my view of like I mean, like, the editing in his film is just, like, a true art form in itself. And, like, the kind of joke with editing is just, like, oh, well, you kind of shouldn't, like, notice the cuts. But in Mm. this one, you really do. And that's another, like, level of the storytelling. Oh, 100% agreed. I wanted to dive a little bit into... It's funny you mentioned that he does romance really well. And I think he Mm. does eroticism much better than a lot of people give him credit for. And yeah. the the handmaiden is kind of testament to that. There's a funny thing with the handmaiden because I love the handmaiden. Mm. But I have met so many terrible dudes who love the handmaiden. <laughs> so I almost like don't like I don't want to like bring up my love of the handmaiden because that is so often like led to me having like the worst conversation in a bar with a guy who like doesn't get it at all and just thinks of it as like sexy lady film. 
Yeah, I mean, just remove yourself from those conversations immediately. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I feel safe here. I don't think you're going to do that to me. <laughs> no, not, not at all. You know, I'm trying to work up a season where I can actually talk about The Handmaiden. <laughs> but to bring it back to Thirst, what do you make of our central love affair? I mean, one of the ways that this film connects with let the right one in is that the center at the heart of it amongst all of the many layers of both of these films is a love story between two very lonely people a very sexy love story at that <laughs> like i remember talking to you once about um uh trouble every day and you were yeah. telling me about how like people were getting horned up at a screening of that yeah and i was like who the heck who that i could not have had less of a reaction like that like i could have not been less turned on and then this film i was like you know what i'm really into this section <laughs> like i am just like fully horned up on the um was it? Uh, Song Kang Ho and King Ok Bin Train mm-hmm. like even at the times where they have truly some of the most upsetting sex scenes I was like I'm still into it <laughs> like they're having a three way with a corpse into it <laughs> but cannot deal with Vincent Gallo even for a millisecond on screen <laughs> no, it's, he's a real boner killer for me yeah so let's go in a little bit into Sanghuin in particular, who's the mm. who's the protagonist, and is I think such a lovely, lovely earnest vampire. Yeah, I mean, and I love this idea of like somebody that's like deeply, deeply, and sincerely religious and mm. spiritual, just being so depressed and essentially being suicidal. But mm. the only way that they can sort of commit suicide essentially is by signing themselves up to like dangerous medical experimentation because that's still ultimately like an altruistic act mm-hmm. but yeah no i really like I've, one of the things i love about anything that takes place in a monastery is it just gives everything like a really like a historical kind of vibe mm-hmm. like monastery seems to like exist in like no particular place in history so it's already sort of making it feel much more kind of surreal and epic at the mm. same time does that make sense kind of because i think i i get that sense from any films that deal with very intense uh with characters who have very intense faiths mm. and very sort of sincere but also troubled relationship with their faith i think it's something that's it's so fertile for cinema but also very very difficult to get right yeah and, but, and they go really like medieval monk flagellating yeah. in this one, which is, you know, I think something that could seem over the top, or well, I mean, actually, so much of this film over mm. the top, but seem like insincere. But like, he's such a, f- I mean, he's one of the world's greatest actors on camera. Oh, 100%. Um, so, like, the heck that he can just like pull off this incredibly like conflicted person so well, both in like human and in monster form. Ah, just wonderful. Chef's kiss. Mm. I mean, it's it's interesting that you mentioned the fact that it seemed extreme to you, because like, I mean, I grew up in Spain, which is mostly Catholic. So mm-hmm. that like self-flagellating aspects of it did not strike me as extreme at all. Really? Yeah. Oh. I assumed that that was just kind of something from a kind of bygone era, era when everybody was like far less you know, more into like the idea of like sexuality as being extremely sinful, but no, still? Oh. Still, I mean, you know, not every not every Catholic. I wouldn't go around saying that, not at all. But I think the the profundity of his faith, and mm. also 
the, like the idea of flesh seems really interesting in here and he even says it at one point in the film his character where he's wrestling with the guilt not just of his own faith and his own desires but the fact that his desires are now amplified by the fact that he's a vampire mm-hmm. and like what do you think it actually uh, how do you think the film explores the idea of faith and desires and those desires can come in the form of like food lust desire for connection no it's true the lust the lust is always stronger than the bloodlust i mean he's always seems to have more control over his bloodlust than he does for his like lust for teju um and like i did love this like extra element that they bring in of like to the vampiric gas of like that if he he sort of if he doesn't drink blood, he like succumbs to like a painful plague yes. <laughs> and kill him. It's just like another way for us to have like wonderful like visual storytelling. Like mm-hmm. the fact that like oh he doesn't drink blood. It's not that he looks kind of pale and drawn. He just becomes covered in like oozing pustules. Mm. Uh, I can't. I mean, I really, really might watch this film straight after this again. <laughs> I love it so much. <laughs> and. Let's talk a little bit about Taejun because I find her so uh, fascinating yeah. as a counterpoint to him. There's a real, this might be a little bit, I can't help but think of Interview with a Vampire. Mm-hmm. There's a real sort of Louis reluctant vampire, Lestat, really want to kill and fuck everyone now that I'm a vampire vibe going on between the both of them. Yeah. But then I suppose a lot of that comes down to, like, power, like, the power that they've experienced in their lives beforehand, mm-hmm. that, like, fundamentally for all that um, uh, Sakhun has, like, been trapped within, like, the constraints of his religion. He fundamentally is there because he's made a series of choices that mm-hmm. he wants to be a priest, and this is, like... But um, with uh, Taeyu, she, you know, she is grew up in this like horrifically abusive household she's treated so awfully by someone so it makes more sense to me that she is someone that is going to like gleefully embrace power and freedom and her sexuality and being able to do all these things for a first time because Mm. she's really been you know enslaved in many ways Mm -hmm. by like her you know things out of her control being born into the situation that she was and what do you think about the way that their relationship kind of blossoms when they first start off illicitly and then as the film progresses? Do you want me to talk to you the sex scenes? Is that what you're asking me? <laughs> I mean, you brought it down into the gutter, Layla. I was like, what do you think about their love and the way that they're orphans and connect with one another? And you're but like, what? but do you want to talk about the way that they bang and spit blood into each other's mouths? Go on. <laughs> I will totally hear this. I just think there is such a beautiful visual metaphor <laughs> sure. of, 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 of a man loving a woman so much that he will lick her callous toes that are blistered from a hard day's work and the abuse that she suffers. What is more beautiful as an expression of love than that? And if then they bang... Or more power to them. <laughs> but no, I was really moved by that scene where he's kind of licking her feet. Mm. I thought it was beautiful. And like, and I like the idea of 
like we're so used to kind of seeing women even like when we have like women in films that are like supposedly coming from like difficult positions in life that like as soon as they undress they're sort of like so pristine mm-hmm. and like have none of the like scars of what living that existence would be like but i was like yes of course her feet are like yellow and mm-hmm. like calloused but he loves her and he's deeply attracted to her the the chemistry between the the two actors is amazing mm-hmm. and it's also the sort of desperate longing that underpins their sexual attraction to each other like they i mean she calls herself like almost a virgin and he is definitely a virgin so it's this it's not just the fact that it's sort of a forbidden attraction it's the fact that they probably haven't really experienced that level of connection with anyone else and the fact that Taejun's husband is, oh, Jesus Christ, like the grossest human being alive. <laughs> he really is. But yeah, I mean, I have to say, for, I'm quite impressed with that level of like <laughs> physical comedy that yeah. he does. <laughs> That's not easy. Because actually, if you look at that man, that is a handsome man mm-hmm. like, who is really just selling us that like he is sexually undesirable. Mm. And like, disgustingly sexually undesirable yeah but guys something about the dripping nose at all times that uh, um i think it would you know is kind of a hard sell because it doesn't it (laughs) but he pulls it off it's it's between that and the farting in the kitchen and having his mom smell it and determine that he needs some more medicine (laughs) it's like this is a very very big boner killer for me and for Tejun <laughs> clearly but yeah but it's funny because they are so like there's this sort of weird thing where with the sort of abusive behavior that both her mother-in-law and her son have towards mm. her where it is a little bit played for laughs mm-hmm. like we don't go as like dark into it as 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 we could but there's still a sense that like when that man is dead that that is a good thing Mm-hmm. Like even when we find out, because you know uh, she claims that he's abusive to her towards her, or, uh, and he is. He's just mm-hmm. not like beating the crap out of her. But he, she lies to um to San- um Sankey, um Sankyo. and says, yeah, sorry, Sankey, and 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 says that he was, and then it turns out that that was a lie. But I just mm-hmm. feel that like it's not really like it's in a way like it's just because you're not able to particularly articulate the the exact nature of your abuse doesn't mean that he wasn't abusing you and he mm. well maybe not deserved to be murdered but he deserved to be gone she deserved to be free from him yeah i think that's a really interesting point that you bring up because that's how complicated the the moral dynamic is in this film and mm-hmm. the fact that sang hyun actually has a very quite like black and white approach to morality because I think this is what makes him so interesting as a vampire figure as well, is because he's got this thing of, I won't kill people. He drinks blood from a comatose patient. Like, he doesn't force anyone. He doesn't attack people, really. He doesn't want to murder people. And mm. he murders her husband for her because he thinks that he he's morally allowed to kill this man because he was abusive towards her. But he doesn't actually give this but you're right she doesn't really articulate it in 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 a particularly um like complicated way because she also is like manipulative in a way that i find really yeah. interesting but he, 
Sang-hyun also doesn't see, even though he sees it, he literally is there. He doesn't accept the fact that, that he does deserve to be gone. Like, the husband yeah. does deserve to be gone, even though he wasn't, you know, physically abusing her. Yeah, it was just another added layer of horror of this film. Like, mm. the amount of of cruelty that, like, people are allowed to have towards young women without mm. anyone saying anything. On that note, kind of, what do you think about the way that their relationship changes once they're both vampires? Yeah, it's interesting because, like, clearly... It's, you know, she's something of a, she's far more monstrous and far less kind of confined. And I think she sort of sees herself as being like this, like alpha being now, Mm -hmm. like human life doesn't really matter so long as, just so long as it like serves her. And it's interesting that like, there's a suggestion, like, because Sanghyun is not really changed that much as a character when he was made when he got this virus and became a vampire mm-hmm. but the suggestion is is that sort of how she's felt the whole way like it's not that there's been a massive change in her character it's just that now she has like the opportunity to be monstrous that she is but it kind of makes sense to me that like oh if you live in like this society where you are treated like dirt by everyone and told that you don't matter mm-hmm. that like then when you get a little bit of power you feel that way too mm. no i i really i totally agree like it seems so freeing for her whether it's yeah. for him it's like this burden but i think she was like a nihilist the whole time mm. at that point well actually two things what do you Mm. think about the actual mechanics of being and becoming a vampire in this film yeah so it's kind of convention it's like a virus Mm -hmm. isn't it yeah um but yeah no there's a there's some phenomenal stuff with the um older priest that desperately wants to become a vampire as well so he can regain his sight Mm -hmm. and that like Sankyun finds that so, you know, abhorrent and disgusting. But, like, the idea that you can only, like, he seems to only believe that you can kind of take on eternal life if you really want, if it's a burden to you. Mm. The idea that, like, anybody might actually do this to do simply something like see again, which Mm. I think is kind of a reasonable thing to want, is abhorrent to him. And I wonder whether that kind of buys into that kind of flagellating idea of Catholicism, of, like, everything must be, like, be so tied to, like, suffering Mm. and giving everything up and, like, not having any joy. I think it kind of does, to be honest. I I think you've really, you've really articulated there. And in the same way, there's that moment of selfishness from Sanghuin's point of view when he transforms, well, he, Taejin is killed, and then he Mm. sort of transforms her, kind of, after she's gone, which I, which I totally, I think is totally filmed like a sex scene. What do you think? Yeah. Again, turned on. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, I'm with you with that scene. I was like, this is, uh, there is a lot of, a lot of stuff going on here. But it's sad because like, it's fundamentally like, it it kind of comes at this like last minute choice that he has of like, Mm. oh, I'm, I really want, maybe I don't want to be alone. And this is someone that would be happy for me to turn them. But it's like, why didn't you think that from minute one? Like, what is it about, like, 
this sort of, and maybe it's the reason that he became a priest. Like he's so into like denying himself joy. Mm. Like, yeah, which is devastating. But like, um, Song Kang Ho's face, I was just like watching this film and I was like, this man has just got muscles or something in his face mm-hmm. that nobody else in the world has because he yeah. like is just able to do things genuinely there is times where he is almost unrecognizable mm. because of just like a certain thing that he's expressing. It's like, it's like, it's almost like he doesn't have a face. <laughs> we literally <laughs> just have like a portal into feeling and thought. <laughs> I love that. A portal into feeling and thought. Fuck, that's beautiful, Layla. Thank you. But I had <laughs> Put it a- on the poster. I had a thought. <laughs> Bear with me here. But um, have you ever done a bar class? Oh, like uh, the exercise. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know how it's like it. you don't really move that much, but it somehow hurts more than any other exercise class that you could yeah. ever do? And you're like, I only moved my foot. Why does my, why does my, like, my whole torso hurt? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's kind of to, in a much less elegant way to continue on from your point about Song Kan Ho is that his performances kind of feel like a bar class where it mm. seems like nothing is really happening on his face like what are you doing what's happening i don't understand why is this so amazing and so effective and by the end of the film he's just broken you into a million little pieces and you don't quite know what exactly did he do or how he's done it and then you yeah. see him in a completely different film in a radically different role and he's done it all over again and you're just you can't move and your whole body hurts and your yeah. soul hurts yeah, but he he he's a faceless portal bar class of a man, and, and 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 we love it. We do. I don't get it. I'd be really scared to meet him. He seems like such a fun person as well. I was like, there's there's too many emotions going on here, and now you can also fly. <laughs> if any editors are listening, commission Anna and I to write an <laughs> extended long read on this man's face. <laughs> Just a deep dive bar class style analysis of the muscles oh in God. his face and everything. I literally they say. might pitch that to someone. I might pitch an article to someone of like top ten things that Song Kang Ho's face has done. <laughs> and kind of on that note, what do you once there seems to be a really distinct tonal shift in the last Mm. third of the film i'd say once they're both vampires what do you make just like it's it's so incredible like when you're looking back of like everything that just happens in the final act like there's so many things that i mean maybe not iconic on a like a broader but me personally iconic scenes within this of like that incredible rooftop fight that they have which Mm. is like i literally just got off watching um four hours of the Snyder cut and and they spent 70 million dollars and none of it is anywhere close to this scene on the rooftops of like they actually have there's a sense of like power and 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 like weight and like and and the mechanics of it kind of work and I think that was so beautifully done but then the scene where the catatonic mother is trying to tell her friends that these two people murdered her sons. Mm. I think it's like some of the most hilarious physical dark comedy I've seen in a very <laughs> long time. Like it's so funny. And like, and it's kind of, it's, it's one of those things where it's so dark that like, is it, you almost are like, am I 
okay to find this as funny as I do. (laughs) I mean, they, they know that it's funny. You're not kind of like, you know, it sort of only becomes apparent after a few minutes when uh, you have that amazing bit where Teju like picks up the chair with the mother-in-law in in it and then forgets that she's not supposed to have superhuman strength and so has to just gently put her down. Like, it's absolutely hilarious. And then the wonderful white hallway, 80s music video horror scene. Ah, just, oh, wonderful. Wonderful. (laughs) And when does it all kind of start breaking down? Like this, this wonderful extreme existence that they're both leading. When do you feel it starts kind of crumbling around them? I think it's probably, I mean, it's sort of doomed from minute one, mm. isn't it? Because fundamentally, Sanghyun is never going to be happy as a vampire. Mm. And and he's never going to really be prepared to leave this sort of monstrous creation. That, well, he thinks she's monstrous um, on the planet to like kill people. He feels responsible for that. And so there's kind of only way that it could go, one way that it could go. But I was really struck watching it now for the first time because um, Sanghyun decides that in order to kind of get rid of the mythology around him, that he is like this wonderful healer, an incredible person, is that he's going to make it look like he tried to rape a woman in a campsite Mm. and then that will sort of demystify everyone about him, uh, which is like so sadly would not work. Like when people are like deified men, like the idea that like a single attempted sexual assault would like ruin your reputation really like struck me as being like, oh, that's really sad that that probably wouldn't do anything. Oh, that and, is like within like in reality, like people would be like, yeah, she probably deserved it. Oh Jesus, that's I know, but isn't that sad? That, that is that's... really sad and <laughs> sadly very accurate. Sorry, I've been slightly affected by recent events. <laughs> yeah. No, no, that's completely understandable and also fuck, just a good point. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's it's a good point. It's kind of I think, you know, within the the spirit of the film, I think it kind of taps into a certain naivete that he has about mm. people. The character has about yeah. people and how they perceive him. But to start kind of wrapping up our conversation about it, what? How do you think the film works as as a vampire film? How do you think it kind of uses and also updates or or just approaches differently our ideas of vampires on screen? Yeah, I think it's a very like classic vampire tale in many respects, and like I believe it's based on a Victorian novel which doesn't actually have vampires, it's more about infidelity. Yeah, Therese Rakan. Sorry. My, uh, I have also not read that. I haven't read Let the Right Way In. I have not read that either. Well, it is but not like, a book podcast. <laughs> true. And um, Yeah, so it is kind of like there's something about it that feels extremely timeless to me. Mm-hmm. I think it's more kind of like looking at that through like the wonderful mind of Park Chan work mm-hmm. like so it's yeah so whilst maybe it doesn't have so much to say about like vampires that mm-hmm. is that unique it's more just kind of like putting that wonderful filter of his perspective on everything which mm-hmm. I think you could you could literally have him make any genre of film and he's just got such a beautiful way of 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 
of framing everything of like putting kind of like really like complicated themes of like shifting tones all the time that mm. are just gonna elevate it to an incredible level and even though this film picked up i think it was the best director award at Cannes film festival yeah i want to say no i uh, sorry i think it was the the jury prize it was jury a jury prize, prize yeah which again still i know we have this conversation every fucking year but i am still amazed at how still it seems um an exception it is every time a, a genre film a horror film sort of gets recognition from the the mainstream prestige bodies of the film industry and yeah i wanted to ask you kind of entirely uh you know entirely subjectively like why do you think this film perhaps is not as well known or doesn't come up as often amongst the films of Park Chan-wook or even kind of those art house horror films that uh, you know let the right one in fits in as well perfectly why do you think this film maybe has not crept in into the the mainstream horror mind as much as others have I honestly can't see why, because it's like so fun and yeah. so gorgeous, and like it's you know, Song Kang Ho is now is like a very well known global actor, so totally. it makes very little sense to me. My only thing is that maybe it's just so rare that something does break through mm. that like maybe it's more that it's remarkable that Let the Right One did mm. rather than rather than like saying anything about Thirst that it didn't. I don't know. What do you? What are your thoughts? Like, do you? Did you have like a big sense of this, like being a film at the time that it came out? Like, I didn't grow up in like Europe so much, so I didn't. So I'm often like have very inaccurate takes on what actually was a popular film. Well, we'll never call your takes inaccurate. I think I'm trying to think back, and I think I was similarly to you aware of it because of Park Chan Wook. Mm-hmm. Because I was sort of discovering him around that time, and I remember watching. I haven't, I hadn't seen rewatched this film in a long time. But I'm thinking now, and and it's like even now, even after Parasite broke mm-hmm. through in such a big way, and even after Song Kang Ho and Park Chan Wook as a filmmaker became massive global successes, I think this is probably the film that of his that people talk about. One of the few of his that people talk about the least. I remember probably the first film of his that I saw was I'm a Cyborg, but that's okay. Mm. Which is another one of these kind of really weird, romantic, sci-fi-ish films. Which is amazing. And it's also one of the ones that people don't really talk about that much. And I'm just thinking of... I'm just looking at the poster of it now, which is this incredible shot of... Um, Tejin kind of upside down grabbing onto the neck of a sound very sexy so (laughs) sexy and so just you know eye-catching and he's wearing his catholic priest collar it's like all of this is just screaming uh, this film needs to be massive and i don't know i think perhaps the length perhaps the length it is over two hours long Mm -hmm. and the fact that it kind of doesn't scream that it's as funny and as and as violent in a really funny but also provocative way as it is yeah do you think looking at that poster someone could think that it would be like a very dry film about kind of sexual desire and priesthood that maybe like yeah nobody even gets it on they just want to maybe i mean 
I, I mean, it's it's hard to kind of put yourself into like a kind of tabula rasa state mm. because like I came to this film knowing the director and knowing, Same. you know, and kind of, well, not knowing what to expect necessarily, but like knowing that like quality was assured. Mm. Yeah, same. But And then really to wrap it up, kind of what do you think, where do you think both of these films now with the benefit of hindsight what do you think they have done for vampire films in general? Hmm. I would say that Let the Right One In has probably had more of an impact hmm. um, kind of stylistically across kind of, not just vampires, but like horror, horror generally. Mm-hmm. And like that kind of reigniting of like the creepy kid mm-hmm. that you then tended to, you've, we've seen a lot of in the past 10 years or so since mm-hmm. it came out. Yeah, but I guess because in some ways Thirst is more conventional mm. in everything but its execution, so I don't know that it has like that great the like legacy of influence mm. that came afterwards. I wish it did. I want more films to end with like whales jumping through blood. <laughs> <laughs> with vampires burning themselves alive with yeah. a with a paralyzed old lady watching them. <laughs> Yes, these are all, these are a few of my favorite things. I want all of those. <laughs> and also uh, ghost threesomes, I guess. Uh, yeah. And like, and <laughs> like literally, um, I want kind of sickly ghosts to come in and like just kind of insert themselves into three ways. And I want more, way more Song Kang Ho full frontal nudity. Like so. <laughs> well, it's not called thirst for nothing, is it? <laughs> yeah, what the thirsty hoe in me? <laughs> Layla Latif, an intellectual. <laughs> Layla, before we wrap up, is there anything about thirst that you wanted to mention that that we haven't covered already? No, I don't think so. I think it's just like, I hope that it just kind of communicated like just how much this is a film that if you like Park Chan work or you mm-hmm. like vampires, you like, um, you know, just excess, just like excess on screen. Like, you know, things don't have to be, you know, so restrained in order to be like credibly art house things can just be like maximalistic at all times and it's great Mm -hmm. when it's in like someone as skilled as him it's an amazing way to end and Layla thank you as always for your time and for your insight in both of these films and for all the Song Kang Ho thirsting (laughs) not sure why I was not expecting that it makes complete sense Yeah, this is very much my wheelhouse. And where can people find more of your work online? Follow me on Twitter at LaylaLatif.com. I've got, um, I'm just about to start a column with Curzon, which is exciting. Um, yeah, but I'm constantly on Little White Lies. I'm at Total Film. I'm with BBC Culture. I'm with Freeze. I crop up all over the shop. But yes, also, if you want to write for Bloody Women, email me, please. Layla at the Final Girls, uk. If you have any great pictures, any thoughts, no matter how obscure, actually, the more obscure, the better. Let's try and come up with something together. Awesome. Thank you so much. That's it for this episode of the Final Girls podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. 
If you can, please do leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and you can find out more about what we do over on the final cost of code.uk. Subscribe to our weekly newsletter over there and follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at The Final Girls UK. If you can, please head over to patreon.com forward slash The Final Girls where we post bonus episodes and more goodies and we really, really, really appreciate your support. You can also find Layla at Layla underscore Latif and I am on Twitter at Anna B. Demented. Thank you, as always, for listening. And next week, we continue with the Vampires of the Naughties with a deep dive into Byzantium and Only Lovers Left Alive.